Good morning. Happy 4th of July. This morning we're going to talk about Jezebel. You've probably all heard of Jezebel, the, the woman referred to as the most evil woman in the whole Bible. She's so evil that her name is used to symbolically represent those who have completely rejected God in the book of Revelation. We don't really know what Jezebel looked like, but I like to imagine that she looked something like this. Oh, good. Some, I didn't think last hour anybody recognized her. Beautiful, powerful, regal-looking features. But we all know that the evil queen will not hesitate to feed you a poisoned apple. Or to rip the heart out of your chest and squeeze it in her bare hands. Even the pronunciation of her name sounds evil. Jezebel. So you can probably understand the reaction I got in staff meeting a while back when Jezebel came up and I said that I had respect for her. What? And long story short, somehow now I'm standing up here <laughs> talking about Jezebel, wondering how did I get myself into this? Well, deep down inside, if I'm really honest with myself, I know that if I hadn't been raised in a Christian home, I could have been Jezebel. I have a younger brother who would probably be more than happy to testify to that fact. I have a, a brother who's four and a half years younger than me, a sister who's seven years younger than me, and there was no way I was letting them have any of the power in our household. Sometimes there was a little political alliance with my younger sister, but never with my brother. So much like a, a wise businessman has respect for his competitors, or a good athlete knows his competitors, or a superhero has respect for his nemesis, where they study them and they know their strengths and their weaknesses and it helps them make their choices. It's the same kind of respect that I have for Jezebel, my evil twin. Let's take a moment and look at where Jezebel fits into history. If you've been with us over the last year, you know that we recently finished the story, which was a 31-week walkthrough of the Bible, and hopefully some of this looks familiar to you. Um, in 1043 BC, Saul became the very first king over the nation of Israel. He was followed by David and by Solomon. And then in 931 BC, the kingdom was divided. So the 12 tribes of Israel were split, and we have the kingdom of Israel, but now we also have the kingdom of Judah. In 874 BC, when we had evil king after evil king after evil king, Ahab, it's his turn, he becomes king over the kingdom of Israel. And that's where our story begins. Last week, um, Alex talked about Elisha, the prophet, and also a little bit about his mentor, Elijah. And they are contemporaries of Ahab and Jezebel. So that's where we fit into history. If you would take a Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 16, we're going to 
flip through First and Second Kings, and we're going to pick out the pieces of Jezebel. She's really not the main character in the story that's being told. So we kind of have to flip through and find her story amongst the rest of the story. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to take one of the pew Bibles with you, put your name in it, make it your own. So in 1 Kings chapter 16, look at verse 29 to start with. This is where we first see Jezebel. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So Jezebel was the daughter of a high priest of Baal, who then went on to become king over the land that she was from. The Bible doesn't really go into any details about the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel. But based on what I know of history, I'm going to guess that this was an arranged marriage for political reasons. How did Jezebel feel about that? Was she furious that dad, you know, contacted Uber and hooked her up a ride off to Israel? Was she relishing the opportunity to go to a new land and exert her power there? We don't know. We do know that she arrives in Israel driven to have her own way. In verse 32, it says, He, he being Ahab, set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. I always wondered what an Asherah pole looks like. They're referred to in various places in the Bible. And so I found a picture of one. Look how ugly that is. And can you imagine how God feels when he looks down and he sees his people worshiping that? Jezebel not only came to Israel worshiping pagan gods, but she pushed that practice onto the whole kingdom. To make Jezebel happy, Ahab built temples to Baal and Asherah poles for people to worship. How powerful of a woman was Jezebel that in a time when, we've talked about before, women were considered property. You had a goat, you had a wife. And yet Jezebel somehow has enough power over a king to get worship of her gods instituted in the entire kingdom. Ahab broke both the first and second commandments just to keep Jezebel happy right off the bat. Now, if we flip to 1 Kings 17, verse 1, God sends Elijah to Ahab. Now, Elijah said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And Ahab and Jezebel, instead of feeling the least bit sorry for what they had done that brought the wrath of God upon their country, instead were very angry. 
and Elijah's life was in danger. So if you look down to verse 9, God says to Elijah, Go to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. And this is interesting because Jezebel was from the region where God sent Elijah. So God is basically saying, there's a little irony in this here, your life isn't safe when you're staying within the borders of the kingdom where Jezebel is at the helm. So to protect you, I'm going to send you to her father's kingdom. It's a little odd in my, my opinion. Now we're going to look at chapter 18. Verse 4. This is almost like a a side note when you're reading through the chapter, which is kind of bizarre because it's such a big statement. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred of the prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each cave, and had supplied them with food and water. And then again, in verse 13, Obadiah was speaking, and he said, Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. So Jezebel not only brought false gods into Israel with her, pushed those gods onto the people, and then she actively pursued the prophets of the Lord and had them murdered. This is awful. And what do I see when I look at Jezebel doing those things? Well, I see determination, and I see drive, and I see commitment to a cause. And I have to be honest and say, I kind of understand that kind of thinking. Did you ever have to work on a group assignment in school? Right? And the teacher goes through her litany of what the expectations are for this assignment, and you're just... Please, please, please let me choose my group members. Please, please, please. Nope. Teacher's going to pick them for you. Right? So you get assigned to this group of four, which there's, like, supposedly this theoretical idea of why you put this person with that person. Right? And this is where my inner Jezebel comes out because I look at these people that I've just been stuck with, and I'm like, okay, well, there's, you know, Fred and... He's just going to sit there and do nothing and be content to take the points for whatever the rest of us do, and he doesn't care what that is because all he really cares about is going home to play his video games at the end of the day. And then we have Sally, who's, like, super excited to be here and willing to do whatever we want in her great big bubble letters, right? But she doesn't have two brain cells to rub together, so she's not going to do anything. And then we have Sam. Sam thinks that he's going to lead this assignment and he's going to take charge, but Sam can't really lead his way out of a paper bag. And so we're going to have to do things my way. Everybody better buckle up because you yahoos are not going to ruin my A in this class. right? So I kind of have an understanding of Jezebel's personality. And yet at the same time, I look at this and I'm so grieved by the loss of innocent life. This reminds me of when you see pictures from the Holocaust of the piles of bodies that have just been disregarded. And why were they killed? Because they were the Lord's people. And it's the same thing here. Hundreds of the Lord's people are just killed just for being God's people. Let's look at verse 19. So Elijah 
goes back to Ahab, and this is where he makes the challenge for the contest at Mount Carmel. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. We don't have time to go into it in great detail. But he goes to Ahab and he says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. I don't think that Jezebel really had a table that seated 851 people. But the statement here shows us that she was actively supporting and providing for the false prophets that served her gods. Elijah intentionally picked Mount Carmel, and this is something that, being from Ohio, I'm not really familiar with the geography of Israel, but when you look at a map... You can see, because this is a topographic map and it has some relief in it, you can see that Carmel is this elevated area with flat area around it. And you can see up top, there's Jezreel. So Ahab and Jezebel are situated in Jezreel, and they can see this contest that's going to happen from Jezreel, as well as hundreds of other people, because Elijah said, bring all the people. And the contest goes on, and Elijah makes the most of this moment, this chance to get back at Jezebel and all her false prophets, and he mocks them. And in the end, God wins. Baal and Asherah lose. And Elijah has all of those false prophets killed. Oh boy, he just poked the tiger. Jezebel is furious. Never mind that she had all those prophets of the Lord killed. This is different. These are her people. And she is angry. So chapter 19, verse 2, we see her send a message. She says, send a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Them being the 850 prophets that have just been killed and are dead. It's a death threat on Elijah. And Elijah, the most powerful prophet of God in the history of Israel, runs for his life. Elijah just took on 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah single-handedly, but he runs from one woman, Jezebel. What kind of a woman must she have been? And then we get to the story of Naboth's vineyard. And I just can't help it. When I hear this story, it makes me think of these two. Are you familiar? We have Prince John and Sir Hiss from Disney's animated Robin Hood. In 1 Kings chapter 21, starting with verse 1, it says, Sometime later... There was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use as a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. So Ahab wants to make a deal. But in verse 3... Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Naboth's land had been in his family for generations, and he wasn't willing to give it up, even for compensation. So Ahab went home, 
sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. And then in verse 5, his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And to be perfectly honest, I can almost envision this scene, and I can actually like feel her reaction with him. She walks in and finds her husband, the king of Israel, pouting. Seriously? So verse 6, he answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelites, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. The Jen Kerr version of those verses is, Hello, who's king here? You or Naboth? And inside, she's saying to herself, Time to take matters into my own hands. I will fix this. Just like Sir Hiss and Robin Hood, when Prince John starts pouting and sucking on his thumb, pulling on his ear and crying for his mommy, he steps in and he sort of hypnotizes him and does what he wants. It's the same with Jezebel. She exploits this moment of weakness. So in verse 8, it says, So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, his being Ahab's seal, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So Jezebel frames Naboth. And I think it's sort of bizarre that she frames him with the charge that he cursed God. Because, you know, what does she care about God? Well, then in verse 11, it says, So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent the word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. It's murder again. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, and we can just envision her eyes going, get up, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. And so now we add theft to her list of crimes. So let's take a look at Jezebel's rap sheet. We've got worship of Baal and the Asherah, murder of hundreds of prophets of the Lord, feeding or supporting the prophets of Baal, making a death threat on Elijah, 
murder of an innocent vineyard owner, and theft of the vineyard land. And for some reason, the murder of Naboth and the theft of his land is the last straw for God. This is one of those times when I don't understand God. I'm not sure why, you know, the murder of hundreds of his prophets wasn't enough. But there's something about this that's just the last straw for God. So he tells Elijah to deliver a prophecy. If we look at 1 Kings 21 and verse 21, he, being God, says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut them off from Ahab, every last male in Israel, slave or free. And then verse 23, he says, And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. And then we see this prophecy repeated again in 2 Kings 9, verse 10. The author of 1 Kings goes on to say, There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. So some time goes by, and now we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 9. So in this time that has gone by, a man named Jehu has become king over the kingdom of Judah. And God sends him into Israel to take care of business for him. For the sake of time, I'm not reading through all the verses where we see that Ahab was killed in battle, and one of his sons dies, and another son was killed by Jehu. We get to verse 30 of chapter 9. It says, Then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she said, Have you come in peace, you Zimri, you murderer of your master? So Jezebel's using a expression that basically is accusing Jehu of treachery because he had killed her son. You know, people who live in glass houses. Um, verse 32. He looked up at the window and called out, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Jezebel is dead. And it's an appropriate end to such an evil woman. Then in verse 34, Jehu went in and ate and drank. He's hungry, he's tired, he goes in and takes a break. And then he says, take care of that cursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So Jehu's being the bigger man, let's show this horrible person a little bit of respect because she is a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. They went back and told Jehu, who said, this is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like dung on the ground in the plot at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. 
They couldn't even bury her and give her a grave that people could stand over. God thoroughly finished her. So what do we learn from Jezebel? We've talked about her strength, her determination, her drive. Well, in education, when you're teaching a class, a lot of times you you show examples of what to do, but sometimes we use what's called an anti-example. If I assign a project, I might take one from past years that was really bad and say, don't do this. Okay, and Jezebel is one of those examples. She's the anti-example. So I like to think about the what-ifs. What if, instead of worshiping Baal and the Asherah, what if she had chosen, when she arrived in Israel, to worship the one true God instead? What a big difference. With a person with her kind of power and character, what difference would that have made in Israel? What if instead of murdering hundreds of prophets of the Lord, she had publicly supported and esteemed the prophets of the Lord? What if instead of feeding the prophets of Baal, she had fed the prophets of the Lord? What if instead of threatening Elijah's life, she had treated him with honor as God's prophet? What if instead of murdering the vineyard owner, she had praised her husband for honoring Naboth's wishes? What if instead of stealing the vineyard land, she had arranged to buy a different property? Jezebel was a very gifted and talented woman, but she made all of the wrong choices. What if she had made good choices instead? And what about me? I recognize that I've got an inner Jezebel, and I know that I have to make the choices every single day to follow what God wants me to do instead of making self-serving choices instead. I know that every single day I have to commit myself to living for God. And I know how easy it would be for me to be a Jezebel. What about you? Some of you have the gift of leadership, but some of you don't. Every single one of you was created by God uniquely. And he gave every single one of you a set of gifts and talents to use in your life. Earlier we had Liliana come up and read these verses from Romans. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Each of us are to choose to be a living sacrifice in the way that we live our lives. And then the author of Romans goes on to talk about our gifts. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, and this is the wrong verse. Is it? Okay, it's not switching the slide. I will read it from here. Did it? Okay. (laughs) We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. So God wants us each to take the specific gifts that we have 
and to choose to live our lives as a living sacrifice. The choices we make each and every day influence the world around us. Are we going to make good choices that serve God and his purposes? Or are we going to make self-serving choices that only serve our own purposes? I've asked Marcus to come up and close this with a song that's called Life Song. The song talks about this concept of being a living sacrifice, for your life being a song to those around you. I want you to think about, as he sings the song, what does that mean for you and your life? What is your life song?